circumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. The word of the Lord. So we are in a series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you've been with us, you've uh, seen every week that this letter is all about one big question. And the question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Last week, in last week's passage, we saw that the gospel is all about freedom. Specifically, the gospel means that we are free from the responsibility and the burden of having to save ourselves through our own efforts. We're free from that because we're all looking for love and acceptance. And the gospel says that God loves you and God accepts you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. That's how you're loved and accepted by God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how bad you failed. It doesn't matter how horribly you've messed up. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It matters what Jesus has done for you. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that leads to a question, and the question is this. Um, people would say, well, does that mean that I can just live however I want? I'm saved by grace. There's no condemnation, no fear of rejection. If God accepts me no matter what, then what motivation do I actually have to live a good life? That's a great question. In fact, it's related to one of our culture's biggest objections to Christianity. And the objection goes like this. People will look at Christianity and they'll say, wait a minute. You know, if, if people are saved by grace and being good, doing good things has nothing to do with it, does that mean that someone like a mass murderer or a pedophile could live a life of utter, complete evil and then at the very end of their life be on their deathbed, repent and turn to Jesus and that God would accept them, that person? That's evil. That's monstrous. It's radically unfair. How could something like that be true? That's a huge question. It's a fair question. Very fair question. Because here's the thing. I think it's pretty safe to say that we all want to live in a world of goodness, right? I mean, a world where people are kind and generous and loving and sacrificial and fair and forgiving and, and gentle with, with one another. Who doesn't want to live in a world like that? The question is not whether we want that. The question is, is it even possible? And if it is possible, how does a world like that actually come into being? If so, 
how might we actually produce a world like that? That's the question. What can actually produce that kind of goodness? The gospel does it by changing the motivations of your heart. That's how Paul says it happens. You see, the question is, if you're saved by grace, why bother being good? Why bother living a good life? This passage shows us, and it does so specifically by showing us three things. And we're going to see them this morning. We're going to see the centrality of motivation, the offense of the cross, and the freedom of love. All right? The centrality of motivation, the offense of the cross, and the freedom of love. All right? First, the centrality of motivation. And the very first thing we see here is Paul is not saying to Christians that it doesn't matter what you do. In fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying that because of God's grace, we do need to obey God. So look at verse 7. Paul says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So right there we see Paul is saying obedience does matter. The gospel is supposed to result in obedience in our lives. If it doesn't, it's not the gospel. So that's the first thing. But secondly, notice that Paul is showing us here that mere external obedience is not enough. God cares as much about why we obey as about whether or not we're obeying. So look again at that question Paul asks in verse 7. He says, who hindered you from obeying? If you think about it, that's a really amazing question. Because remember the context of this letter. If you've been with us, Paul is warning the Galatian Christians about something. There were teachers who had come into the church, and these teachers were preaching a slightly different gospel. They were saying, well, you need faith in Jesus to be saved, but faith in Jesus isn't enough. You also need to obey the whole Mosaic law. That's the hundreds of commands and regulations that God gave the Israelites through Moses. And so the Galatians were getting ready to adopt all of these rules, all of these regulations in their life. On the surface of it, it looked like the Galatians were about to get really, really obedient and Paul says to them, if you do that, you're actually going to get pulled out of obedience. Now, how could that be? The key, I think, is to realize that Paul doesn't say, who hindered you from obeying the law? He doesn't say, who hindered you from obeying the rules? He says, who hindered you from obeying the truth? What's the difference? When Paul talks about the truth, he's talking about the truth of the gospel, that means that he's saying externally, yes, you could be obeying the rules, but internally, your life could be completely out of accord with the truth of the gospel. Externally, you're obeying the rules, but internally, you're not obeying the truth. So for instance, we all know, I, I think, that, you know, is it possible that someone could be obeying a law against, say, racism, but inside of their hearts, their hearts are filled with hatred and malice towards people of other ethnicities? Is that possible? Absolutely. And would we not also say that such a person would be a wicked person in spite of their formal obedience? Absolutely. So, for instance, Martin Luther King talks about this in a speech he gave once in 1963. Here's what he says. If the problem of human evil is to be solved in the final sense, hearts must be changed. But we must go on to say that while it may be true that morality or a changed heart cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. It may be true that the law cannot change the heart, but it can restrain the heartless. It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important also. 
Now, do you hear the internal logic of what he's saying? Martin Luther King's point is the importance of making laws that will restrain evil, all right? But part of the point, he says explicitly that our greatest human problems can only be changed if the human heart is changed. That means that until that happens, people can and should be morally restrained from committing evil, even though their hearts are still filled with evil. Now, here's the question. Do you think God wants morally restrained people or internally changed people? What's more desirable? People who are externally restrained from committing evil or people who are so internally changed that they don't even want to commit evil to begin with? I think the answer is obvious. In this passage, Paul is saying that God doesn't just want external obedience. He wants internal transformation. And even more than that, he's saying that when we do the external obedience without the internal transformation and then think that God should actually be pretty satisfied with us, it's the same thing as if we had actually disobeyed in the first place. The gospel doesn't just address your behavior. Oh, it'll do that. It'll change your behavior. But the way it changes your behavior is by getting down deep into the deepest motivational structures of your heart and changing you there. It doesn't just change what you do, it changes why you do it. The problem is, a lot of times we think that our external obedience really is indicative of the internal state of our hearts, right? Oh, I'm doing good things. I'm a pretty good person. Deep down inside, I know I'm a good person. And that means that we need to move on to point number two. So we've just seen the centrality of motivation. The second thing we need to see is the offense of the cross. Because Paul is making a contrast here. This letter to the Galatians is is one of contrast, much contrast in this letter. What are we really talking about here? I want to keep bringing us back to the big question. What's the big question? The question is, on what basis does God love and accept us? That's the the question. On what basis does God love and accept human beings? In this passage, Paul shows us there are basically two options, two big approaches for how we go about connecting with God or finding love and acceptance from God. And those two approaches are radically at odds with each other. And you see both of those approaches in verse 11. Paul says, look, if I'm still preaching circumcision, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, both of the two approaches for how people go about finding love and acceptance with God are right there. And those two approaches are circumcision or the cross. And those two approaches are at odds with each other. Now, what do I mean by that? The two approaches, circumcision or the cross. What's circumcision? We talked about this last week at length, so I'm not going to go into it in detail this week. But when Paul talks about circumcision, he's not simply talking about a physical procedure or uh, a specific religious ritual. He's saying circumcision stands for an operating principle for your whole whole life, okay? Circumcision is an approach to God. It's an operating principle that says this is how you find love and acceptance with God. So remember, again, the context. The false teachers were telling the Galatians, look, faith in Jesus is necessary, but you need more than faith in Jesus. You need to obey all the laws of God in order to be saved by God. You have to obey the whole law. And the sign of your commitment to do that is circumcision. 
Okay, so circumcision stands for this operating principle, this approach to God that says God accepts people on the basis of what they do. Now, to translate that into modern terms, we would say it this way in our culture, um, it's important to be a good person. That God accepts any good person who is sincerely seeking him. That's the way we would say it today. It's the same approach. This is the first approach to God. Friends, this is the default approach to God. That God accepts people on the basis of their goodness. It's the default approach. What I mean is that approach seems so intuitive to us, so self-evident that we don't even bother to question it. So for instance, we were talking last week about cultural narratives. We said a cultural narrative is any belief, any view of the world that seems so intuitive to us, it seems so self-evident to us that we don't even question it. It's a belief that is so intuitive that it's actually invisible to us as a belief, and yet it is a belief, okay? So our approach, our default approach to God says that God accepts any good person. We don't even think about that. We don't even question that. Of course, you've got to be good in order for God to accept you. That is the default approach to God. And by the way, you see that in every world religion except for Christianity. It doesn't matter. You know, every religion has its own version of what we would call salvation. Uh, some religions might call it going to heaven. Others might call it nirvana or enlightenment or divine consciousness, but there's a goal. And every religion says that the way you achieve that goal, the way you find salvation is through what you do. It's through self-effort. It's, it's all completely dependent on what you do. It, it all depends on you. But the cross says that approach, that default approach to finding love and acceptance with God is dead wrong. It's dead wrong. Why? You're not going to like it because the cross says to each and every one of us, there are no good people. The first approach says God accepts you on the basis of your goodness. The cross says there are no good people. And I know as soon as I say that, you know, we all kind of wince inside like, ooh, did he really just say that? But, but the cross is offensive. It's inherently offensive to us. Remember what Paul says in verse 11? He says, if I were to preach circumcision... In other words, if I were to tell people that God accepts you on the basis of your goodness, if I were to do that, Paul says, that would remove the offense of the cross. Now, that word offense is, the Greek word is scandalon, and I think as soon as I say that, we all recognize, you know, we get our English word scandal from that word. The cross scandalizes us. And if the cross doesn't scandalize you, if it doesn't offend you, then you haven't yet begun to understand what the gospel is really saying to you. Because the cross says that all of humanity is so lost, so wicked and sinful, that God had to come to earth. It was an intervention. God had to intervene on our behalf, and the cross is the sign of that intervention, of what it cost God to actually accept us and love us and, and welcome us into relationship with him. That, that's offensive, that scandalizes us. For instance, there was a noblewoman in 18th century England. Her name was Lady Huntingdon. You know, back when they had lords and ladies and aristocrats and things like that. And Lady Huntingdon got, um, she became a Christian through the preaching of a, a very famous preacher named George Whitfield. And she um, was so moved by his preaching that she started inviting all of her aristocratic friends to come hear George Whitfield preach, all these lords and ladies. She was sending them invitations. And, and one of the invitations she sent was to a friend of hers, a um, lady called the Duchess of Buckingham. And the Duchess of Buckingham refused her invitation and sent her back a note 
Back then they didn't you know, do text messages, they wrote letters to each other. She sent her back a note saying this. Here's what Lady, uh, the Duchess of Buckingham said. She said, I thank your ladyship for your invitation, but it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. It is highly offensive and insulting, so I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiments so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Now, the Duchess of Buckingham was offended by the gospel, but guess what? So are we. Because we say, look, of course there are wicked, evil people out there. Of course there are, you know, the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. Can you think of anybody that might fit into that category? You know, we, we see that. But then we also say this, but to be told that I have a heart as wretched as the, as the most common people that crawl upon the earth, moi? That, that my heart is evil and wicked, as, as wicked as those people, to say something like that to me, that's monstrous, highly offensive, insulting. Lady Buckingham, I mean, the, the Duchess of Buckingham was offended by the gospel, but so are we. We're all offended by the gospel. Why? Why are we so offended? It's because if you only look at your behavior, then, yeah, of course, maybe you're not doing all the wicked, evil monstrous deeds that maybe other people are out there doing in the world. But the real offense of the cross is that it doesn't just expose the bad things we do. It exposes all the bad motivations behind even the good things that we do. Think about this with me for just a moment. If, go back to that first approach. If, if you believe that God accepts any good person who sincerely seeks him, God accepts any good person, that the basis of our acceptance with God is our goodness. If you believe that, then what are the basic motivations for being good? It's all basically a form of self-interest. So for instance, there's a pastor in New York named Tim Keller. He's constantly asked this question, and here's how he says it. Uh, he says, people constantly say, look, if I become a Christian, if I were to lose all my fear of rejection by God, then I wouldn't have any incentive for living a good life. And here's what he says to them. He says, every single time he responds the same way, he says, if when you lose your fear of rejection, you also lose all incentive for living a good life, that just means that the only incentive you ever had for living a good life in the first place was fear. It's a form of self-interest. So think about it. You know, if your primary motivation for being good is so that God will accept you, then, then you're not really being good for God, are you? You're being good for you. Your goodness is not for God's sake. Your goodness is for your sake, which means that it's not really goodness, is it? Friends, far from removing all motivation for living a good life, the cross is actually the only thing that can restructure the motivations of our heart so that we are now free of self-interest because self-interest is at the heart of most of our obedience in this world. And why does the cross do that? It's because the cross says that God does not accept us on the basis of our goodness. He accepts us on the basis of his grace. God does not accept us on the basis of our goodness, but his grace. But in order to receive that grace, you have to admit you need it. I mean, grace has a catch to it. You know, we love the idea of grace, but when we really start thinking about it, grace means that we have to allow the cross to offend us. We have to allow the cross to scandalize us by showing us that we're not really as good as we think we are. Because what is grace? The definition means unearned favor, 
unmerited favor. You don't earn it. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how horribly you've acted. It doesn't matter what you've done. Grace means God accepts you no matter what, no matter what you've done. That's great news if you know you've been bad. But if you think you're good, it's offensive. It's scandalous because there's a catch to grace. Grace means, on the one hand, you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. Isn't that great news? God, you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. But if that's true, then by definition, you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. That's grace. Friends, that leads to our last point. We've seen the centrality of motivation and we've seen the offense of the cross. But the last thing we need to see is this, the freedom of love. Because here's the question, how does the grace of the cross actually give us a new motivation for being good? How does that happen? Because notice in this passage, Paul says that the gospel actually should make you more obedient, not less, more obedient. Look at verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to do whatever you want, but through love serve one another. Do you see that? That do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Far from freeing you to live however you want, the gospel actually places more restrictions on your life. It frees you, but then it, it puts you into a different kind of freedom. Now, just a quick side note, when we read that word flesh, it's easy to really misunderstand that word. I know I did for many years when I first became a Christian. When people hear that word flesh, it's easy to think God is really down on earthly pleasures like food, sex, and drink. I mean, especially sex. That's what we hear when we hear the word, ooh, flesh. <laughs> now, the Bible uses the word flesh in different ways. One of the ways the Bible uses the word flesh is just to refer to human beings, people. Especially people in our finite, limited nature. We're, we're weak, we're finite. Not necessarily bad, just finite, okay? That's one way the Bible uses the word flesh. There's another way the Bible uses the word flesh, and that's the way we see it here to, to refer not just to our, our weak, um, finite nature, but our fallen, sinful nature. Now, when the Bible talks about flesh, it's not talking about created things like food, sex, and drink. It's talking about our desires for those things. In other words, it's saying that what's bad is not the things themselves, but our desires for those things can become distorted or warped or twisted. Okay, That's what it's talking about. In fact, the way Paul talks about it in this verse is actually a really helpful way of understanding what he means by flesh. Notice he says, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. There's a contrast there. Do you see it? You're either serving yourself, that's the flesh, self-interest, selfishness, self-focused, or you're serving others, selflessness. And, and when you see that, you realize that the freedom Paul is talking about here is a very unique kind of freedom. The freedom that the gospel gives to us is, is utterly different from every other kind of freedom that the world has to offer us. Because gospel freedom is not just freedom from. That is a very secular way of thinking about freedom. You know, our, our secular culture's narrative of freedom says every person should be free to live however they want as long as they don't harm someone else. That's, that definition of freedom is a freedom from. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Our secular culture's way of defining freedom is freedom from. Freedom from restrictions. But gospel freedom is not just freedom from, it's freedom for. Because what does grace do in our lives? 
Grace frees you from being a good person as a means of salvation, but at the same time it does that, it also frees you for being a good person as a response to salvation. Because grace does not remove the need for obedience in the life of a Christian. It doesn't remove the need for obedience, it changes the role of obedience by giving you a whole new motivation for obedience. Because look at how Paul defines the essence of Christian obedience in this passage. He talks about love. You notice I, um, we pulled the end of last week's passage and began this week's passage with it. So this week's passage actually begins and ends with this radical call to love that the gospel, gospel obedience is manifested in love. So if you look at the end, Paul says, through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what is love? Again, it's easy for us to think of it you know, in terms of how our culture defines it, which is very similar to the way we define freedom. Our secular cultural narrative of love says, very similar to freedom, that we should leave people alone. Live and let live. Don't, don't mess with people. Just let them live the way they want to live. Let them be free to live however they want. And so we think, oh, the golden rule. You know, people like the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I think we think that's a good concept. Well, how do I want to be loved? I want to be left alone so I can live however I want. And that means that for me to love someone else means that I should leave them alone to live however they want. That's what love looks like in our culture. But that is not a biblical definition of love. The biblical definition of love is not that you are less involved in people's lives. It's that you are more involved in people's lives. We're actually going to see that as we go through the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. Loving people, biblical love, is actually getting more involved in their lives, sometimes even confronting them if, if it requires it. It's more involved in people's lives. Real love means that you give up your self-interest for the sake of someone else, for the interests of others. It's not freedom from, it's freedom for. Friends, that is not a light obedience. That is a far, far deeper obedience than anything we've seen up to this point. I mean, if you wanna see it in practice, look at a marriage, or even better than that, a parent-child relationship. What does it mean to love your spouse? Or what does it mean for a parent to love their child? It means restricting freedom, right? It means you give up your freedom for the sake of someone else. You give up your freedom for the sake of, of loving and serving someone else and putting their needs, their interests ahead of your own. Friends, love is the ultimate expression of freedom because love is the ultimate loss of freedom. You voluntarily give up your freedom for the sake of someone else. That's love. Love is the ultimate expression of freedom because it's the ultimate loss of freedom. And that means that, that obedience means you restrict your own freedom. You, you, you give up your freedom, and love is the ultimate expression of how you do that. But here's the final question. How in the world are we actually going to be able to do that? In other words, how does the gospel, how does the cross, the, the gospel of grace, how does it actually change the motivations of our heart to give us the ability now to restrict our freedom, give up our freedom so that we can love and serve God and other people? How does it do that? There's only one way. You have to see that it's already been done for you. When you are the recipient of love and of grace, how does that really change your life? 
There's a woman named Elaine Scarry. She's a professor at Harvard University, and she wrote a book some years ago called On Beauty and Being Just. And one of the main things she says in the book is that beauty has the power to um, make us better people. Beauty has the power to make us more equitable, more generous, more loving, more sacrificial. It has the power to make us better people. And the reason, she says, is because an experience of beauty is what she calls radically decentering. It's a great way of putting it. In other words, beauty has the power to lift you up out of yourself, to make you forget yourself, take your focus off of yourself, out of your selfishness, out of your self-centeredness. In fact, it's interesting how she puts it. At one point, she says that, you know, think about the times when we think we're being most sacrificial and most equitable and most generous. She says those are the times usually we're conducting ourselves as the central figure in our own private story. In other words, think about the times when you're being loving and generous and sacrificial. We're always thinking about how loving, generous, and sacrificial we're really being, aren't we? We're still thinking about ourselves. And she says that the only way that we can get up out of ourselves so that we can be truly loving, truly uh, generous, truly sacrificial without having it be self-centered and thinking about ourselves is to have a radically decentering experience of beauty, a heart-stopping experience of beauty. So she tells a story about a woman who was sitting at a window um, and as she was sitting there in her home, she was feeling very anxious. She was very resentful. She was brooding about some damage that had been done to her reputation. But then she looked out of the window and she saw a kestrel hovering in midair. Now, a kestrel is a, a kind of a falcon um, that has the ability to position itself against the wind in such a way that it just hovers almost like it's suspended in midair. It's an incredibly beautiful sight. And she says that when this woman saw this kestrel just hovering in midair like that, the, the beauty of that smote her heart. It impacted her heart so powerfully that, that she completely forgot about her anxiety, completely forgot about her resentment and, and about her reputation. She was, as she says, unselfed. She was unselfed. Friends, there is nothing more beautiful, nothing more unselfing, nothing more radically decentering than the power and the beauty of sacrificial love. And the place you see that love, the ultimate expression of that love is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the center of everything. He's the center of the universe. Everything revolves around him. He's, he's the creator of the universe and there is no one or nothing more glorious, more radiant, more beautiful than Jesus Christ. And if the vision of a falcon suspended in midair has the power to, to strike our hearts with beauty, how much more the vision of the glorious creator of the universe hovering over the creation robed in, in light that we can't even comprehend, filled with a thousand colors that we can't even imagine. How much more beautiful is that? But this God, this beauty, this Savior, Jesus Christ, was shot from the air. He fell to earth, and he was pierced with all the arrows of justice on our selfish, self-centered sinfulness as he hung on the cross. Because, friends, on the cross, Jesus gave up his freedom so that he could love you. Do you realize that? The center of the universe was radically decentered on the cross so that he could center all of his love 
on you. Jesus was unselfed so that you could have a self, so that you could become a self. Friends, you do not earn that. You do not work for that. You don't perform for that. You don't strive for that. All you can do is receive that by grace. And if you do, that has the power to lift you up out of yourself, to make you forget yourself, it unselfs you. And as it does that, it recreates the very same principle of sacrificial, self-forgetting, and therefore self-giving love in your life as well. The more you see Jesus on the cross, giving up his freedom, losing his freedom in order to love you, who by definition don't deserve it, the more you see him doing that for you, the more you now are able to turn around and in a, in a response of awestruck gratitude, the more you are able now to, to lose your freedom, to restrict your freedom and, and be able to love and to serve others as you've been loved. What a love. There is no greater motivation for goodness than that. That love, that's an obedience. And that's the only motivation that can change your heart and make you able to live the same way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross as initially and on the surface of it, offensive and scandalous and difficult as it is. Lord, we thank you that that as we go down deep into what the cross really means, that we find that um, as we break through the offensiveness, we find the sweetness and the love and the self-giving, sacrificial loss of freedom that Jesus offers us on the cross. Father, we pray that the more we see Jesus, the more that freedom-restricting, self-giving love would be recreated in our own lives, that we would not get less obedient, but that we'd become more obedient to your um, truth, Lord, the truth of your gospel, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.